Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Normally quote from Hollywood, especially on Christmas morning, but I think that the famous actress Betty White has some interesting things to say to the younger generation of actors that have come up. Uh, She's had some comments for people like Lindsay Lohan and and Charlie Sheen and some of these um, actors and actresses that seem to be ungrateful. Here's what she has said. She said, Modern movie stars party too much, don't learn their lines, are unprofessional, and they grumble about everything. I think they are terribly ungrateful. Now, we see this all around us. We see these Hollywood movie actors and actresses that they they want the limelight, but then when the paparazzi comes and takes over, uh, they they get so ungrateful and they they treat people like dirt. We've seen the prima donna athletes that want millions and millions of dollars and and they are ungrateful when they don't get paid and and people like teachers and policemen and social workers that are really making a true difference in this world are getting paid dirt while these other people treat them like dirt. We live in an ungrateful culture of entitlement where people all around us are ungrateful. Maybe it's, it's, you've experienced it. Maybe even this Christmas, you've, you, were, you did an act of kindness for someone. You went out of your way to be generous and, and the person blew you off. The person didn't say, thankful, didn't say thank you. They, they were just very ungrateful in your circumstances. We're plagued as a culture that's not thankful. A culture of entitlement. A culture where... There's ingratitude. But as we celebrate Christmas today, we've been looking the past three weeks at these attitudes that we as Christians need to have as we approach the Christmas season. Two weeks ago, we looked at repentance, how we need to repent of our sins and and turn to Christ. Last week, we looked at joy. Today, we're going to look at the attitude of gratitude. Why, as Christians, of all people, should we be grateful for what God has done in our lives. God has done some amazing things in our lives and we of all people should be grateful, should be thankful for what God has done. Now there's a lot of reasons to be grateful. We could probably spend a lot of time here today, but we're not. There's a lot, thousands of reasons for us to be grateful, but we're just going to look at three. Three reasons for us to be grateful this morning. And these are all basically related to this passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 1. So let's look at Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. 
He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So reads the words of the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts this morning and we would truly understand what it means that you came to save your people from their sins. Holy Spirit, would you come now in this moment and do the work that only you can do of convicting hearts, of converting sinners, of doing only what you and your sovereign grace can do alone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we find in this passage of Scripture the primary reason why Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem. It says it right there in verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for, here's the reason, he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to obtain our eternal redemption. And notice the certainty of the statement. It says he will save his people from their sins. Not he might save, not he will theoretically save, not he will set up a system whereby we in our own willpower could somehow uh, conjure up enough um, good works to, to save ourselves. No, it says he will save his people from their sins. Jesus on the cross died and he got what he paid for. What did he pay for? You and me. He saved us from our sins. But that brings up a very interesting question. What does it mean to be saved? I mean, what does it mean to be saved from our sins? We throw that word around a lot as Christians. Salvation. What does it mean to be saved? I want us to explore three issues this morning. Reasons why we should be grateful. Of all people, we as Christians should be the most grateful. And it flows from the cross. What Jesus has done for us in his death on the cross. So we're going to look at these three things briefly this morning. What's the first reason for us to be grateful this Christmas morning? Number one, Jesus saved us from the wrath of God. Jesus saved us from the wrath of God. Now you may ask the question, well, what in the world is the wrath of God? We don't often talk about the wrath of God. It's not as if God is some um, infant or toddler in the corner that got mad because you took away his toys and he's throwing a temper tantrum. It's not as if God is like Zeus and he's, he's about ready to throw a lightning bolt down on you because he's self-indulgent and he's, he's just had a bad hair day. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about God's wrath. God's wrath is his settled and righteous response that he must have towards sin. Because he is a holy God. And a holy God must punish sin. Romans chapter 2, 5 through 6 says this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. And so God says there's a day of wrath coming. There's a day of judgment where God will pour out his wrath on those who are impenitent, those who do not repent. John 3, listen to what Jesus says. John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus is very clear here. If you don't have Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you don't have the Son, God's wrath remains upon you. God's judgment remains upon you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 tells us that among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The Bible is very clear 
that we as lost sinners without Jesus, if you don't have Jesus in your life, if, if you are not a saved person, you are under God's wrath. You are under His condemnation. You are under His judgment. God must pour out His cup of wrath upon sin. Now, do you remember Jesus? When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was praying to the Father and he was sweating drops of blood, what were the words that came out of Jesus' mouth when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Matthew 26, 39. Going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What does Jesus pray? Take away The cup. God, remove the cup. And we've got to ask the question, what is the cup that Jesus wanted to have removed? And then eventually Jesus said, not my will, but your will. I will take the cup. What's the cup that Jesus was referring to? If you go back and trace this imagery in the Old Testament, you find out what it is. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself. Wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Talks about the cup of God's wrath. Jeremiah twenty five fifteen. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. And make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Again, the cup of wrath. And then in Revelation chapter 14, 10, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. What is the cup that Jesus is talking about? It is none other than the wrath of God being poured out in all of its fury upon Jesus. As our substitute on the cross, Jesus would take that righteous anger that God has against sin upon himself. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. Just hours later, after Jesus prayed, Lord, let the cup pass from me. Not your will, but my will be done. I'm willing to take the cup. What did Jesus cry out when he was on the cross? Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma, sekbachthani, that is my God, my God. Why have you, what? Forsaken me. Powerful, staggering words from our Savior. My God, my God. Not my Father, my Father. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? What in the world does it mean that Jesus was forsaken on the cross? It meant that at that moment, he was experiencing the cup of God's wrath. Galatians 3.13 says this. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hung, hanged on a tree. We sang Jesus Messiah earlier, and we get these words from 2 Corinthians 5.21 that refer to that song. For our sake, He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It will take you a lot of years to ponder the depths of that one verse. But what does it mean that Jesus took the wrath of God? What does it mean that he became a curse? What does that really mean? What's the opposite of a curse? A blessing. A blessing. All throughout the Bible, we see the blessing of God. We want to be blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the ones who walk in the ways of the Lord. 
And in the Old Testament, the epitome of God's blessing was found in number six. It's called the Aaronic blessing. It was a blessing that Moses told Aaron to give to the people. You're probably very familiar with the blessing of Aaron. Let me read it for you. Number six, 22 through 26. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, okay, and this is what we're probably very familiar with. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, this is the greatest blessing that any of us could experience. Think about the, the words there. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May the Lord pour out his, his blessing, give you peace. This is what we long for, isn't it? We long for the blessing of God. We long as Christians for that day when we will see Christ face to face. Now, on the earth, we cannot see Christ face to face. No one can see the face of God and live. But in our hearts as believers, God has put that desire for us to want to see Jesus in all of his glory. Think about Moses for a moment. Moses wanted to see the full glory of God. Now, Moses had seen the Red Sea. Moses had seen the burning bush. Moses had seen the manna and the quail. Moses had seen all these miracles, but that was not enough for Moses. He wanted to see God's face. He wanted to see the glory of God. And God said, no, you can't see my glory. Of course, if you see my glory, you will surely die. So we know the story. He put Moses in the cleft of the rock, told him to turn around. Moses was able to see the backside glory of God. And then even Moses came down shining because he'd seen the glory of God. That's the desire of every single Christian, to see the glory of God, to see the face of Christ, to one day see our Savior face to face, to have the face of God shine upon us. It's called a benediction. A benediction is the blessing of God upon us. But what's the opposite of a benediction? What's the opposite of a blessing? What's the opposite of all these things? A curse. What did Jesus experience on that cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The opposite of blessing. He experienced the curse of God. Jesus probably heard these words. May the Lord curse you. May the Lord abandon you. May the Lord turn his face from you. May the Lord pour out his wrath upon you. May the Lord not give you peace, but hostility. All the things of the blessing that we long for, Jesus got the opposite when he died on the cross. He was forsaken by his Father. The Lord turned his face from Jesus. And think about Jesus for a moment. When he was dying on that cross suffering for our sins. It was not for his sins that he was suffering. Jesus never once sinned. He was suffering our sin, our shame, our guilt. And he was being treated as the most vile of criminals, the most vile of offenders. He was being treated as a transgressor. He was being treated as the most wicked of people because he was taking upon your sin and my sin. And at that moment when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's righteous anger, his wrath came upon Jesus in our place as our substitute so we would not have to experience that wrath. It's called propitiation. Okay, here's your Christmas $10,000 word for the day. Are you ready for it? Propitiation. Can we say it all together to make sure you're awake? Propitiation. All right. What in the world is propitiation? It's simply this. God removes his wrath from us by pouring it out upon Jesus as our substitute. Jesus absorbs the wrath. 
Jesus takes the wrath. Jesus takes the punishment. Jesus becomes the curse. Jesus is forsaken. Jesus takes all of our sin, our shame, our guilt upon himself so that you and I would not have to take it. Romans 3.25 says this, whom God put forward, talking about Jesus, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 1 John 4.10 And this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he's loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now I want you to think about gratitude for a moment. If there was ever a reason to fall to our knees in gratefulness, in humility and thankfulness, we should be so thankful that Jesus Christ, our substitute, took the wrath that we deserved. He bore it in his body on the cross. He took the full fury of it and God diverted it from us and God says, because Christ is forsaken, you can be forgiven. Because Christ had the wrath, you can have the peace. Because Christ was abandoned, you can be accepted. That's what propitiation means. Think about the fourth verse of O Little Town of Bethlehem. It captures this. O Holy Child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born to us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad, glad, glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Cast out our sin. Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven through propitiation. Second reason for us to be thankful. The first reason, we've been saved from the wrath of God. Second reason to be thankful and grateful this Christmas season, is Jesus has reconciled us back into a right relationship with the Father. He's reconciled us. What what does Hark the Herald Angels sing? It says, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Now what in the world does it mean for God and sinners to be reconciled? You think about this whole issue of reconciliation. It means two parties are at odds. Two parties are at war. Uh, There's strife. There's alienation. There's a separation. There's a holy God and there's sinful humanity. And we as sinful humanity need to be reconciled to a holy God. Can we reconcile ourselves? No, we can't reconcile ourselves because we're sinners. Christ has to bring us together. And that's what Romans 5, 8 through 11 says. Probably one of my most favorite passages of Scripture. But God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Stop right there. The Bible does not say God waited for us to get our act together so that we'd be good enough for Jesus to think about saving us. What does it say right there? While we were still sinners, powerless, helpless, weak, Christ died for us. Since therefore now we've been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved By him from the wrath of God. There's that word wrath again. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, key word there, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word there is enemies. Now, we may not have known this when we were not Christians, when we were lost people, when we were separated from God, but we were enemies. Our sin separated us from God. We had declared an all-out war against a holy God, and we were enemies. We were alienated. We were estranged. There was a a fracturing. There was a distance. there There was a gap. We needed to be reconciled. Like the Grand Canyon I talked about last night, there's this huge chasm. A holy God on one side, a sinful people on the other side. There's no way we can bridge the gap in and of ourselves. Colossians 1, 21 through 22 says this, And you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, 
doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Those words alienated and hostile, estranged, separated. Christ has reconciled us. And it's such a beautiful imagery because it means now that we're God's friends. We're, we're, we're at peace with God. There's no longer war. We've been accepted. We can truly sing peace on earth because Christ has, has reconciled. He's brought us into a, a right relationship with this holy God. We can now stand in the presence of Almighty God, accepted, loved. We, we can stand innocent because of what Christ has done in His blood by reconciling us. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20 says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins, against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you hear Paul's urgency there? We implore you, we beg you, we challenge you, be reconciled to God. And there may be some of you in this room this morning that have not been reconciled to God. You're still an enemy of God. There's still that sin separating you from God. And the Bible says, be reconciled by trusting in Christ. Trust in what Christ has done on the cross to bring you into that right relationship. So Christmas, gratitude. Number one, we've been saved from the wrath of God, propitiation. Number two, we've been reconciled into a right relationship with God, reconciliation. But what's the third reason? Christ redeemed us out of slavery to sin and brought us into the family of God. I want you to think for just a moment what it means to be lost. Some of us have been saved for so long we forgot what it was to be lost. Not that we go back and wallow in our past, but what have we been saved from? A lost person. If you're a lost person here this morning, if you don't know Jesus, you're under God's wrath. You're an enemy of God. You're estranged from God. You are not reconciled to God. You're in bondage to Satan. You're in bondage to your sin, and you can't get yourself out. The only thing you can do is trust in the provision of what Christ alone has done in his cross to save you, to save his people from their sins. Now, this third thing is called redemption. Redemption means to buy or purchase someone out of slavery. And there's two illustrations of this from the Bible. One's from the Old Testament, the Exodus generation. The Israelites were in slavery where? They were in slavery in Egypt. They were being punished by the hard taskmasters. They were living in slavery. What did God do? God said, I'm going to buy you out of slavery. Here's how we're going to do it. You kill a lamb. You put the blood on the doorposts and lentils of the home. The death angel passes over. You're redeemed. I'm going to allow you to cross to the Red Sea. You're going to get into the promised land. I'm going to buy you. I'm going to purchase you. I'm going to redeem you out of slavery into freedom. That's an Old Testament picture of redemption. Being bought out of slavery into freedom. New Testament. A lot of people in the New Testament were slaves in that culture. You could be a slave for a lot of different reasons. You could have been slave because you were captured in war. You were a prisoner of war. You could have been a slave because you were born into a family of slavery. You could have been in slavery because of a big debt that you had. Back then, they didn't have chapter 11 or chapter 13. You basically just had to, uh, to go into slavery to pay off your debt. But what you could do was someone could come and buy you out of slavery. And so, for example, let's say Nate Downs here is in slavery. Nate, you're in slavery, so I'm going to come. And, I, and, and Sammy is your slave owner. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay... Sa- <laughs> they're married, but that's, t- take that analogy out of the, of the equation. Yeah. I would pay Sammy 
a ransom price to release Nate out of slavery. Once the ransom price was paid, Nate would be freed. There's got to be a price paid to release from slavery. And we find out spiritually what Jesus is saying is, is that he and his body and blood paid the price, the ransom price to release us out of prison. You may say, well, I'm not really in a prison. Well, if you're without Christ this morning, whether you know it or not, you're in bondage. You're in bondage to sin. You're in bondage to Satan. You're in bondage to yourself. And you can't get yourself out. Matthew 20, 28 says this, talking about Jesus. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, to pay his life as a ransom for many. And then 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought, you were purchased, you were redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. On the cross, what did Jesus pay for? Us. He obtained us. He bought us. He bought our release. Romans 3.24 We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now think about these three truths this Christmas season. Propitiation, you've been saved from the wrath of God. Reconciliation, you've been brought back into a right relationship with God. Redemption, you've been brought out of slavery into the family of God. Think about your life and things that you can be grateful for. I was once an object of wrath under God's condemnation, and now I'm, I'm a child of God. I'm accepted by God. I'm loved by God. I'm in the family of God. My, my sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. I was once an enemy of God, but now I'm a friend of God. Once I was estranged from God, but now I'm in the family of God. I've been transformed from a sinner, a slave, and bondage to the devil, and bondage to sin, to being a child of God, having all my sins forgiven. And as I was praying this morning, in my, in my personal time of prayer this morning, uh, one thing that the Lord brought to my mind was this. If God had never given me anything else in my life except for my salvation and these three truths, that would be enough. But can we truly say that? Now, not that God's not going to bless you. And then I started thinking, my, my goodness, God, you blessed me with so many things. You blessed me with health and a family and, and a church family and a beautiful wife and wonderful kids and a job and all these things you've blessed me with. So God, you've been gracious on top of the salvation you've given me. You've given me more things to bless you for. But if God had never given me any of those things but saved me from my sins, saved me from hell, saved me from his wrath and gave me my salvation, that's enough. But as, as Christians, do we, are we grateful for that? Do we meditate upon our salvation? Are we thankful for what God has done in our lives? One writer has said this. At Bethlehem, when the Savior was born, the night was changed to day as the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds. But on Calvary, the day gave way to night as Christ sank deeper and deeper into the abyss of damnation. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. And we're going to close by looking briefly at Luke's account, the shepherd account. Matthew tells us that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Saved us from the wrath of God, reconciled us back into the right relationship with God, purchased us out of slavery into the family of God. But in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, hear the word of the Lord. This is Luke's account. 
In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. I bring you the gospel, good news, of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He will save his people from his sins. A Savior. What's his name? Christ the Lord, the Messiah, the Lord of Lords. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Verse 14 is key. What the angels say. Glory to God in the highest on earth. What? Peace. Are we talking about like a hippie sign like world peace, dude? Is that what we're talking about here? No. All the things that we've just talked about. There is peace between sinners and a holy God because of Christ. And the angelic announcement was this baby who was to be born in Bethlehem would grow up and die to save his people from their sins. And notice what it says there. The ESV translates this probably more accurately than some other translations. With whom he is well pleased. With whom God is pleased. Now we need to ask ourselves a question. What does this mean that God is pleased with us? Does this mean that God is pleased with us in and of ourselves? That God looked down from heaven and said, Wow, that's a great group of people. I think I should save them because they're so awesome. They've got their act together. They don't have any sin. They don't have any problems. They're stellar. They're perfect. I'm pleased with this group of humans down there. Is that what it means? No, it doesn't mean that. It means this. And I I don't understand this, but I believe it. God in his infinite mercy and sovereignty and justice and love and grace decided to save sinners. It's a scandal when you think about it. That the God of the universe would dare save sinners. And because of Christ, he can look down upon us and say, because of Christ with you, I'm well pleased. Because you're connected to my son with whom I'm well pleased. And I've chosen to show you grace upon grace in the death of my son. And what do the angels say? Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. That's our only response. Sometimes the only response you can have to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the the cross is to get on your knees, to maybe even prostrate yourself on the ground and say glory to God. Praise to God. You respond with joy. You respond with gratitude. You don't quite understand it. You don't quite get all the the details. Our our infinite, our finite minds can't wrap ourselves around this God loving us in Jesus. But we come to the point where we realize God of gods, the sovereign of the universe has chosen to shower us with love through Jesus Christ. And all we can do is receive it. We rest in it. We enjoy it. And we say along with the heavenly host, glory to God in the highest peace on earth because Jesus Christ has come to save his people from their sins. And there may be some of you in this room this morning that have never been saved from your sins. Every Christmas you may come to church and that's the Christmas thing to do. You may have just walked in here today because you had no better place to be, no presents to open, no family. I don't know why you'd come to church on Christmas unless God had brought you here. So you're not here by accident. You are here under the preaching of this word because God has you here for the message of salvation. And what better day than Christmas 2011 
to say glory to God in the highest today is the day that I have trusted in this great Christ to save me from my sins. I've been saved from the wrath of God. I've been reconciled into a right relationship with God. And I have been redeemed out of slavery into the family of God. What better day than today? And I would plead with you as Paul did, do it now. Don't wait till you leave. Don't wait till you have to think about it. Respond today. Trust Christ alone for salvation. Glory to God in the highest. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And my simple question for us all this morning is, are we grateful? Do we have an attitude of gratitude towards the amazing love that God has shown for us in Jesus Christ? I'm amazed at how many times in my own life I can be so prideful, so sour, so critical, so condemning, so complaining. And all that matters nothing to what Christ went through on the cross for me. Would we be a people of gratitude, of joy, of humility? as we contemplate and think and meditate upon the glories of Christ and what he's done in our lives through his cross. Don't let this Christmas pass you by without humbly responding to the grace of Christ Jesus in our lives. Spend just a few moments this morning in silent prayer. Some of you for the very first time may need to pray to receive Christ as Savior and Lord, to confess him as your Lord to trust, to turn from your sin, to repent of your sin, to, to forsake your sin and to embrace the Savior who stands ready with arms open wide to accept all who would come to him in repentance and faith. All who would humble themselves before this great Savior, he will not cast them out. All who come to Christ, he will never cast out. So come to him today. Come to Christ.